All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to continue now in our series in Corinthians. Today we're going to talk about a very, very familiar passage. Let's start reading in verse number 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord... That which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this good service so far. Thank you for all of the opportunities and things that are coming up that we're Uh, that were promoted and talked about this morning. I pray for each of those events, and I pray, Lord, that all of them would go well and glorify you. But now, Father, I pray our minds and our hearts would turn to your word. For, Father, that's what is before us. This is your word. I pray today, Lord, this would not be my opinion. It would not be my thoughts. Lord, that you would hide me behind the cross and fill me with your spirit and help me today, Lord, to just simply proclaim what is here. Uh, I pray, Lord, that everybody that is in this room would take it that way. And I pray we would hear it as the word of God. Uh, it's, it's one thing to, to speak it, it's another to hear it, and I pray, Lord, that all of us today would hear your message for us today. So speak to hearts, work in our hearts. Lord, where changes need to be made, help us to make them. And I pray, Father, that you'll just bless this time. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you this morning, what is one thing that we like to do here at Friendship Bible Church? What would be one of the first things to come to your mind? Eat. I knew somebody would say that. Paul, you're, you're just trying to be spiritual over there saying <laughs> The fact is, probably most of you thought of the same thing. Eat. We all like to eat. And as a matter of fact, it's not just us. Isn't that what most churches like to do? I mean, if you look at, think of the fellowships that are common, the activities that are common in churches, it's almost always going to involve some form of eating. We like it. That's why most of us preachers look like most of us preachers look, because we like to eat. And anybody who's been a, a part of Friendship Bible Church for more than a month or two knows it's true here. I mean, we just had uh, Old Fashioned Sunday, and uh, we we ate. Boy, did we eat. And we just had uh, another Campfire Fellowship at the home of the Turners, 
and we ate. We ate. Uh, it's just something that we like to do. It's perfectly biblical. I think it's very biblical. If we look at several verses in the Bible, Acts chapter 2 and verse number 42, it says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and prayers. They like to eat. Uh, another verse, Acts chapter 2, verse 46. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. They like to eat all the way back to the very beginning of the church up until today. That's something that we do in churches. Now, there are a couple of ways that we could interpret that little phrase, breaking of bread, that we just saw there in those two verses. Uh, one is that it refers to the breaking of bread that I've just been describing to you, sitting around eating uh, you know, pig roasts and things like that, like we did a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it could be describing that kind of fellowship, just gathering together for a meal. But there is another interpretation. It also could refer to the ordinance of the church that Jesus instituted the night he was betrayed in the upper room, and which we observe every Lord's Day here at Friendship Bible Church, the ordinance that we call the Lord's Supper or Communion. And actually, I think both of those interpretations are seen in those passages of Scripture. And both of them, apparently, were taking place here at Corinth. Corinth was apparently a place that liked to eat, just like we do. Now, I think a little review might be in order here. If we're going to talk about this ordinance of the Lord's Supper, which is the topic of our message this morning, the Bible says that there are two ordinances that the New Testament church practices. One is baptism, and one is communion. Some people would add a third. Some people would say foot washing is an ordinance. There are some churches that practice that. Uh, but most Bible-believing uh, Christians, most evangelical groups do not, and we don't practice that as an ordinance here. If you want to talk about that, we can talk about that later. But uh, we will be practicing baptism in just a couple of weeks. Uh, we'll talk about that more then. And we practice the Lord's Supper or communion every single week. And so today, uh, that's the topic of this passage, and that's what I want to talk about today. It is referred to here in this passage as the Lord's Supper. That's my favorite uh, designation of it. For some reason, I've always preferred that, that name for it, the Lord's Supper, even though this is the only place in the Bible where that particular name is used. It's also called communion in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's sometimes referred to as the Eucharist. That word Eucharist means giving of thanks because, as we're going to see, thankfulness is central to the thing. The Bible tells me that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, gave thanks. And so sometimes it is referred to as the Eucharist. It's also in 1 Corinthians 10 called the table of the Lord. And it's also referred to, as we've already seen, as the breaking of bread. All of those terms can apply to the same ordinance that we're talking about here today. Now, as we have seen throughout our study of 1 Corinthians, the church at Corinth could take any of the practices of the church and elevate them to a whole other level. And this is, this is uh, no, no exception here today. They had completely and totally messed up the practice of communion at Corinth. Remember how Paul had started out the chapter, chapter 1? Last week we talked about what is arguably one of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible when we talked about this matter of head coverings on women. And do you remember how Paul started out at the beginning? He said, now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But now we come to verse number 17 in this new, and notice what he says here. He says, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. And so here he was, he, he, he had all kinds of reasons to commend them at the beginning, but now not. His segue into this particular passage is a completely different, severe change in tone. This was an area. What we're going to talk about today uh, is not just an area where the church was confused. The church was in sin here. 
The church was messed up. The church needed a spanking here. Uh, Let me share just a couple of quotes that describe what some people seem to think was happening here at Corinth, because it's it's not totally clear from just what we read there. Here's how one person puts it. There is evidence that early Christians linked a shared meal with the Lord's Supper. The idea being that as they all brought food and shared it, and we see that perhaps in verse 21, the less well-off benefited from the generosity of the more prosperous. The idea itself was good. The church was and is made up of people of different social and economic backgrounds. Some may be wealthy while others are poor, and this was a way of sharing together. But at Corinth, it had all gone wrong. Some of the wealthy may have eaten their food without regard for their poorer brothers and sisters, and hunger prompted some of the poorer Christians to start the meal before others arrived or were seated. And we see all of that hinted at in this passage. And so do you understand what he's saying there? It wasn't just this. They were combining this with a meal. They were combining this with what oftentimes has been referred to in commentaries as the love feasts or the agape feasts. Jude talks about love feasts. It was a time of fellowship that then culminated in this. And they had gotten it all messed up. Another person says this about it. Since the beginning of the church, it was customary for the believers to eat together. It was an opportunity for fellowship and for sharing with those who were less privileged. No doubt they climaxed this meal by observing the Lord's Supper. And they called this meal the love feast, since its main emphasis was showing love for the saints by sharing with one another. The agape feast, from the Greek word for love, was part of the worship at Corinth, but some serious abuses had crept in. As a result, the love feasts were doing more harm than good to the church. For one thing, there were various cliques in the church, and people ate with their own crowd instead of fellowshipping with the whole church family. Well, we've seen that all throughout, the whole story of Corinth, haven't we, this matter of division. Another fault was selfishness. The rich people brought a great deal of food for themselves, while the poorer members went hungry. The original idea of the agape feast was sharing, but that idea had been lost. Some of the members were even getting drunk. It is likely that the weekly agape feast was the only decent meal some of the poorer members regularly had, and to be treated so scornfully by the richer members not only hurt their stomachs, but also their pride. And so, this church was messed up. I mean, you think about that kind of stuff happening. They really had some error in, in, in place in this particular area, and they needed a spanking. And Paul gives it to him here. In no uncertain terms, he points out that they are totally wrong in what they're doing in this particular matter. And so let's see what we can learn about this ordinance that we practice every single Lord's Day here at Friendship Bible Church. And I want us to look at it in, uh, let's see, three different ways here. I want us to start out by reviewing what the Lord's Supper should not be, because he makes that very plain. And then let's talk about what it should be. And then just for a minute, I want to mention some consequences of misunderstanding here, because... He mentions some pretty serious consequences if we don't understand this. First of all, what the Lord's Supper should not be. We see that in verses 17 through 23. What the Lord's Supper should not be. And by the way, just as an aside, I believe this particular passage of Scripture is clearly the one you have heard read and spoken of more in this church than any other. I'm almost through my sixth year with you. We practice this particular ordinance every single week. If you do the math, we almost always use 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's probably roughly 300 times or so we've done communion. Uh, And if we're generous, we probably have 250 of those we've done this. So 250 times you have probably sat there and listened to this particular passage read 
from the word of God. And so I ask you, what does it say? We ought to have it down by now. What does it say? Well, one of the things it starts out is it starts out by saying what the Lord's Supper should not be. Verse number 18. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. First of all, he says the Lord's Supper should not be marked by division. And it apparently was here at Corinth. As we said, it goes all the way back. Here was a church still division, factions, cliques, sectarianism. All those things were taking place constantly. Is my mic cutting in and out? How about now? Is that better? All these things were taking place in, uh, in Corinth. And I think they just saw their natural uh, culmination here at the Lord's table. Uh, this matter of division. He says it should not be marked with that. Rather than fostering unity the way they were practicing this particular thing, uh, it, was, it was the exact opposite. It was disunity. The other thing he says is in verses 21 through 22, it should not emphasize the fact that some have and some don't. Do you see that there in verses 21 through 22? The wealthier Christians must have been bringing plenty for themselves but not sharing it. We mentioned that a minute ago as we read somebody else's take on this. Not sharing with the poorer Christians. Some went away from these feasts well fed. Others went away from these feasts having not received much at all. And actually being hungry. Paul said they were despising the poor. In verse number 22. And that ought never be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. You know, we're supposed to remember the poor. That's what Galatians 2.10 says. They were despising the poor. I read one story in one of the commentaries that I was studying this. A fellow was telling about a Sunday school picnic that he had remembered years ago in his ministry. He said this particular Sunday school picnic, the kids were playing, uh, doing an egg toss. You know what an egg toss is? Uh, you know, two people stand a few feet apart and they toss an egg to each other and then they take a step back and then they toss the egg and they take a step back. And they continue to do this. Of course, you have to throw a little harder, a little faster each time until the inevitable happens to somebody. That would be the loser. Well, in this particular Sunday school picnic that was taking place, and the teacher happened to notice these two little children who were newcomers and been there before. And they were just watching so intently. It's like they couldn't take their eyes off those eggs. And so the teacher asked them, you know, what, uh, what's going on? Are you, are you okay? And they said, oh, we're, we're fine. This is wonderful. This is fun. But we were just wondering what's going to happen with the eggs when you're done. Can, could we maybe take any eggs home that are left over? And she came to realize that to these kids, eggs weren't a toy. To these kids, they didn't have eggs. And so she wisely ended it and sent the eggs home with the kids. You know, it's easy to forget. Easy to forget in a, in a church, our church, any church, that some people struggle financially more than others. And that distinction must never be felt in the church. But it was felt at court. The poor people were being mistreated. Those who didn't have were being sent home hungry. It's ridiculous when we think about it. How could it be? But it was. It was. And Paul said it ought never be that way. That's what the Lord's Supper should not be. It's not meant to foster division. It's not meant to remind people of uh, what they don't have. That's not what it's about. He goes on in verses 23 through 26 to talk about what the Lord's Supper is meant to be. What it is meant to be. And I would suggest four things. Number one, verses 24 and 25, the Lord's Supper is primarily an act of remembrance. Remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. We say it all the time. A lot of times you see that on communion tables. Do this in remembrance of me. Now it's important, and I, and I always have to reach out and touch this a little bit, I think. Not because I wish to be offensive. I do not wish to be offensive, but I must tell the truth. I have to, I have to speak the truth. That's what the Lord has called me to do. 
I have to make sure that we're clear on what the Lord's Supper is. We have some folks who have come to us from Catholicism. And it's always important to remind there is a vast, vast difference between what we worship, what we do here, and what Catholicism does in the Mass. It is completely different. Not the same at all. Their interpretation can be summed up in one word, transubstantiation. Transubstantiation refers to the practice, or to the belief that when the priest blesses the bread, blesses the wine, it literally transforms in its very substance, hence the word transubstantiation, transforms in its very substance into the body, the real body of Christ, transforms in its very substance into the blood, the real blood of Christ. That's not what the Bible teaches. If we're going to be just as charitable as we can be about that, we have to say there is no biblical precedent for that teaching. The bread does not become the body of Christ. It represents it. The wine does not become the blood of Christ. It represents it. And every time we partake of those elements which represent the broken body of Christ, represent his shed blood, we are to do so in remembrance of him. We are to remember that he died. He died in our place. One person said we need to remember that he died, the very fact of it. We need to remember that because it's part of the gospel message. Paul's uh, go uh, just a few chapters ahead in first, uh, uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, and you're going to see him say this, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. It's not the life of our Lord that saves. It's not the teachings of the Lord that saves. It's the death of the Lord that saves. We also must remember why he died. He died for our sins. He died for my sins. He died for yours. He was our substitute. He paid the debt that we could not pay. Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Peter said he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. By his stripes we were healed. We must remember why he died. And we must remember... How he died, willingly, meekly, showing forth his love for us. God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gave his body into the hands of wicked men and he bore his body, bore on his body, the sins of the world. So we do it in remembrance, remembrance of his death. It's interesting, isn't it, that nowhere in this passage does Paul discuss the frequency that we are supposed to do this. Did you notice that in there? Nowhere does it say, do this every week. Nowhere does it say, do it every month. Some churches do it monthly. We do it weekly. Nowhere does it say, do it every quarter. Nowhere does it say, do it whenever you feel like it. It's not mentioned. When we had our study on hermeneutics not too long ago in our leadership training institute, we talked about the fact that one of the principles of hermeneutics is that somewhere in the Bible, for every major doctrine, every major teaching, there is some place where everything about that is summed up in one particular place that you can go to. The the seminal teaching about that doctrine. For the Lord's Supper, this is it. This is the place where it's all gathered together and nothing is mentioned at frequency. Why is that? Because it doesn't matter. What matters is that we do it in remembrance of Him. It's not about quantity. It's all about Quality. We do it in remembrance. I love that little chorus we sing. It says, as we drink this cup, we worship you. 
As we eat this bread, we honor you. And we offer you our lives as you have offered yours to us. We remember all you've done for us. We remember your sacrifice for us. We remember and worship you. That's the Lord's table. It's a remembrance. But secondly, it's more than that. Verse number 26 tells me that the Lord's Supper is also an act of proclamation. Verse number 26. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's actually, I believe, the text of this passage. I believe that's the key verse. The Lord's Supper is an act of proclamation. It's a visible sermon. Every time we partake of this, we are preaching, proclaiming the message of the cross and looking back in remembrance to the reality of the Lord's death for us. You proclaim the fact of it every time you eat and drink of this bread and juice. You say Jesus died and he died for me. You proclaim the necessity of it every time you eat and drink. You say I was such a sinner that Jesus had to die for me. He was the only way. It's the only way I could be saved. You proclaim the universality of it every time you eat and drink of this. You say, Jesus died and his death was sufficient for all. And now whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, and anyone who will believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Every time you eat and drink this bread, you proclaim that God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. You proclaim the universality of it. You proclaim the exclusivity of it every time you eat and drink. You say Jesus died because his death was the only way. The only way. You agree with Jesus when he said I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. You agree with Jesus. You understand what he meant when he said enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and there are many who go in by it. Narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. Few there are who find it. It's exclusive. Now the Lord's Supper is an act of proclamation. You're preaching when you participate in this. We, as a church, are proclaiming what Jesus has done for us. Every time we participate, we proclaim that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Every time we partake of the Lord's table, we proclaim that. We proclaim that in the old rugged cross, cross stained with blood so divine, there is a wondrous attraction to me. For it was on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation. Verse 26 also tells us the Lord's Supper is a forward-looking event. Not only did it proclaim his death, it also proclaimed the certainty of his return. Notice that little phrase, until he comes. Until he comes. In Matthew's account of how this all got instituted, we read this. Then he took the cup, and he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We say it every time we take of this, Jesus is coming again. We've been doing this for 2,000 years. Because we believe Jesus is coming again. We are proclaiming uh, his, his soon return. He promised it, and we believe it. And finally, the Lord's Supper should also be an act of self-examination. That's what we see in verse number 28. Verse number 28, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. It's interesting, isn't it, that Paul said you could partake of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. 
It's interesting. What are you supposed to be meant by that? I think obviously he was saying that the Corinthians were partaking in an unworthy manner and that they were divided amongst themselves. They were mistreating the poor amongst them. Certainly that would fit in here. That would be an unworthy manner. But I think it goes beyond that. That which makes us guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, verse number 27, is simply sin. It was our sin that made that death necessary in the first place. And it's ludicrous. I think what Paul's saying is ludicrous to think about coming to the table, wearing that sin openly on your sleeve, unconfessed sin. There's a difference to a Christian between sin, which we all have, and unconfessed sin, which none of us need to have. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse number 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What he's saying here is we need to confess that. We need to make that right. It needs to be a time of self-examination where we confess and repent of our sin. I think the Lord's table provides a reminder each time we gather around it of the importance of keeping a short account with God. Don't come in here and come to the table with something in your life. Paul says, confess it. Get it right. Talk to the Lord about it. And then come to the table. So we see, and we'll stop right there, we see the, how the, what the Lord's table ought not to be, and then what the Lord's table ought to be. And just a couple comments on the consequences of confusion, because he says some very serious things in verses 27 through 32. I won't spend any time on it. But it is interesting, isn't it? Paul describes the abuses that were occurring at the Lord's table in Corinth. And he says that they lead to the chastening of the Lord. They say, Corinth, in your case, they have already led to the chastening of the Lord. Notice he says some were weak in Corinth. He said some were sick in Corinth. He said some were dead in Corinth. Why? Because of the abuses of the Lord's table. That's a pretty amazing, amazing thing. When you think about that, verse number 30. All those examples of chastening mentioned there were because they did not approach the Lord's table in a worthy manner. Chastening is a topic for another day, but for now, just ought to help us to recognize how important and how somber this particular thing is and why we need to take it seriously. As I studied this this week, I came across all kinds of different ways you might look at this. I've shared one with you, but I want to share just one more interesting Outlined that I found. Just mention it because maybe it'll help us to maybe sum this up in a way that's understandable. One person said, You can think about all these things and understand what we're supposed to do with the Lord's table uh, by thinking of the word look. Look. He said, We ought to look back in remembrance of his death. We ought to look up in thanksgiving to God. We ought to look around to make sure we're in a relationship of fellowship and love with God's people. We ought to look in in self-examination, and we ought to look forward to our Lord's coming again. 